Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And we are very excited to be joined today by Professor Carol Anderson, but I'm going to throw it to Waj for what has become his famous movie phone intro of our very special guest. Uh, one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite historians, uh, blesses our show today. Welcome to Professor Carol Anderson, the Charles Howard Candler Professor of American African-American studies at Emory University. Her research focuses on public policy with regard to race, justice, and equality. She is the author of numerous books, including The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, coming out in paperback on March 7th. Welcome, Professor Carol Anderson to Democracy-ish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that Hollywood-ish um, yes. introduction. Uh, you know, Professor, uh, it's it's a pleasure to have uh, to have you on our show. You you have your pulse uh, on the finger uh, on the finger of your your fingers on the pulse of the nation, and you have the remarkable remarkable ability of, in my opinion, uh, really dissecting uh, the historical undercurrents and explaining it. To the average Jose, people who are less smart than you, people like me, in 200 pages or less. I mean, it's like each one of your books, White Rage, the second, which I finished yesterday, which again, is a fantastic book. It's coming out in paperback in a couple of weeks. And you just hit us with it, like 200 pages, boom. Uh, and the sad part is the, the sins of the past are ever present in America. But before we really get into it, I have to mention that we are talking to the most dangerous black woman in America, my co-host, Danielle Moody, because <laughs> Nikki Haley, uh, and on mm. behalf of all South Asians at the Cultural Ambassador of South Asians in the racial draft, I hereby renounce Nikki Haley. We are dropping her. Do not pick her up off of waivers. She joins Herschel Walker, but she just <laughs> announced that she is running for president with a 4% approval rating. Somehow she will miraculously dislodge Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, but in her ad, that dropped on Tuesday, Nikki Haley, who said that she's a proud daughter of Indian immigrants, then mm -hmm. decided to bring out the time and tested model minority myth to trample on black women. And she decided to use black faces to terrify America about these people who hate our freedoms and are talking about racism. And one of the faces that she brought out was Daniel Moody who was speaking uh, on the great show that we used to do all the time up that got canceled in MSNBC. And she was talking about that dun, 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 1619 project. So Daniel Moody, why are you so scary? Why do you hate freedom? Why do you hate equality? And why are you promoting the myth that America is racist? Well, so funny, Waj, because apparently freedom is a myth, according to Nikki Haley, uh, which is how she opened up her... Uh, presidential ad video. It was shocking. Like it was shocking to be one of the faces of black women, women of color who have spent their career trying to advance equity and freedom and justice in this country. Me using podcasts and writing to be able to do that. 
um, and then have it used in the way that it was. And I just, you know, I find Nikki Haley to be one of the most vile, right, uh, politicians more so than the others because she only brings out her brown card when it is convenient for her. Otherwise, she is a brown skin Karen. Mm. Uh, and that is that is what she has done. Her proximity to white supremacy, her proximity to patriarchy has what ha- has what has been what has allowed her to uh, elevate, you know, uh, and ascend to certain areas of prominence. And it's this denouncing and using black women's faces and work as the trampoline to try mm. and get her right to pounce over. Uh, the leaders of the Republican Party, the white supremacist ringleaders, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. So I find Nikki Haley to be an embarrassment, uh, not only to her culture, to women, uh, to serious women that are in politics, because I believe that she ended the video with kick, like using her high heel to kick someone. Um, it's just it's so antiquated. It's so ridiculous. Um, and I guess, you know, at the end of the day, after I was enraged uh, by my face being used, you know, I guess that you I must say that I, I'm doing something right. If in all of the faces and all of the people that you could go forward uh, to use as a target uh, for wokeism, that I'm one of them. So so be it. You know, Professor Anderson, we were just briefly discussing right before we hit record uh, that this is nothing new. The white supremacy uses cultural validators, people of color, uh, as mm-hmm. to promote this myth of the model minority as a cudgel to divide and conquer us, right? Yes. And specifically, yes. as uh, Zora Neale Hurston said, uh, all skin folk ain't kin folk. Uh, can you give us the historical overview of how the GOP in particular has used black and brown skin to launder and promote white supremacy? Mm. Uh, I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> as much time as you want. <laughs> you know, it is. So part of it has been the kind of repackaging. It's all part of that Southern strategy, which was to to woo in the Southern Democrats who are absolutely committed to anti-Blackness, to the destruction of Black life and Black, black civil rights, Black folks' citizenship. And to to in that wooing then, because the civil rights movement had made being an overt racist and avowed racist, like not cool. It wasn't the badge you wanted to carry. And so you had to figure out a way how to be racist without saying, yo, Lord, I am racist. And so part of that was if you can get a black person or, or a brown person to carry that water, then it's real easy to say, see, I'm not racist. Mm. I mm-hmm. mean, it was, it was Tim Scott who said there was no systemic racism. And I'm like, son, you are in South Carolina. How can you say there is no systemic racism when you are black? So yes, I know he is a senator, but he talked about being pulled over by the cops, what, five, six, seven times? Mm -hmm. How is that not systemic? Does Mitt Romney get pulled over six, seven times? Right. Right? So what that does then is it allows him, so when you get Tim Scott saying, there's no systemic racism. Well, then clearly there can't be any systemic racism. It is having folks like Herschel Walker, mm. who says that, you know, what Raphael Warnock uh, wants, he wants white people to feel ashamed about being white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. to have a black man standing up there in front of a virtually all white audience, it then provides the cover. I mean, so this is, it's an old playbook. And so I'm talking about folks who are here now, but it is an old playbook that was developed much earlier on um, because it is a way to be racist without being racist. Uh, Because if you can get a black person saying it, it's Clarence Thomas. It's Clarence Thomas. Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) You can let it out. This is a safe space, as the kids say. Uh, you know, so you think about Clarence, who basically, when he was the head of EEOC, said that there was no systemic discrimination. There was no discrimination against women. There was no discrimination against black folk, against brown folk, against Asians. There was no discrimination. You're the head of EEOC. 
Uh, and so those those complaints just piled up until they timed out, till they 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 the statute of limitation had run out on them. But this mm. is the same man when he gets called up for his mess during the confirmation hearings, decides he's going to play black and talk about this mm. is a high tech lynching. Come for, on, for uppity black folk, right? I mm-hmm. was like, no, you didn't, son. You did want to be black. So say not being black. Don't pull it out when it becomes handy for you, um, where you can then try to shame folk into not calling you out on your mess, because this is your mess. Take personal responsibility for your mess. Um, And and so it's it's Clarence Thomas, who then when he got on the bench. He was he was he was like in a five, four decision gutting the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act, there was Clarence Thomas gutting the Voting Rights Act. Um, it's it's exactly what you know what you what you just described as you were describing Clarence Thomas. It's literally what Nikki Haley is doing as we speak. You yeah. know, we're recording this the day where she launched her presidential campaign, and she said exactly what Tim Scott said: America's not a racist country, uh, but I'm a proud daughter of Indian immigrants, right, Danielle? And she even said, oh, my father, who did everything right, he was racially profiled. Nikki Haley was called a, quote, raghead by a fellow South Carolina Republican uh, about 12 years ago, right? But she sits there, and as a South Asian, I mean, you're, you're talking about Black folks who do this. As a South Asian, we feel it. And what's worse, I think, Danielle and Professor Anderson, is that they use Asians and South Asians as the good minority. You Blacks. Why can't you be like them? They work hard. They smile with their white teeth showing. They don't rock the boat. They row the boat. So as a black woman, and for both, you know, Professor Anderson and you, Daniel, when you see Asians and South Asians throwing Mm. black people under the bus to get to whiteness, you know, Mm -hmm. how does that make you feel and how do you respond? Like, what do you want to tell them? Like, what could be like the warning signal that you can give them? There Mm. was an incredible book that uh, dealt with the issue of the model minority and asked the question, how was it that the Chinese who had to deal with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s and the Japanese who were interred in concentration camps here in the U.S. during the Second World War, how did they go from being so vilified to becoming the model minority? And this scholar said it is because they went from being not white to the model minority comes up in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. So they went from being not white to being not black. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so it is to understand it is the power of that binary that moved Asian Americans to the model minority space. What that means though, is that it puts them, it pits them against other minorities, um, because it is, look, they're smart. They value family. They work hard. They go to school. I mean, so think about, think about the um, anti-affirmative action lawsuit that's going through. When Ed Blum first tried it, he, well, not first, but when he tried it twice in Texas, he did it with a white woman who, whose grades and test scores just could not match up. And he went, dang, that's not working. So then he takes it to Harvard and he chooses Asians to say Asians are being discriminated against because of affirmative action. <laughs> uh, so it is using Asians as a method to say, see, this is meritocracy because this becomes another one of those myths. Meritocracy. All you have to do is work hard and you too can achieve. The regime of Donald Trump blew apart the myth of meritocracy. We saw so much mediocrity that you Come knew, on. They, <laughs> you knew they didn't get there uh, by working hard, by being the smartest, by having the best plans. None of that. This was, this was whiteness and white privilege working through to push these folks through because they had an agenda dealing with an increasingly diversified America. The model minority is old British colonialism, divide mm-hmm. and conquer. So, yes, Danielle. 
Yeah, you know, it, it's just it's so it it's so wonderful to listen to you. Uh, provide the historical context, provide all of the receipts, right? Because what it, what's problematic about where we are is that folks still think that this is new, that what the Republican Party is adopting is new, that Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are new. And when when we realize that a part of their deconstruction right now of our democracy comes from the erasure of this history, right? We're here because they want to ban uh, uh, courses and, you know, and, and theories and ideology that you teach, right. That you, that you have built a career on. They're telling you, guess what? It's not academic. It's not academic, right? There's no rigor that is there. There's no value. There's, no, there's value. no value. Right. There's no value, right? Because what this country has been built on has been anti-blackness. And so any, then any immigrant to this country, that can put an arm's length between themselves and blackness, right, is then closer to whiteness and assimilation and acceptance. And that is what pe- that is the first thing that people understand. And I've said this before on this show that I am a child of immigrants. My family came from Jamaica, right? Growing up when I was young, before they really understood, contextually understood America, it was, Danielle, don't be like those black Americans. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's not us. Right. Because they even wanted to make the distinction. And I would say, grandma, grandpa, like, you know, cousins and et cetera. You know that white folk don't know by looking at us that we're Jamaican. Right. Like (laughs) they don't they don't they don't have that that differential focus. Whereas it's our really nuanced. It's like it's it's not that one. Right. It's not that one. It's the one over there. It's like, nah, they we pretty much, you know, they think we all look alike anyway. So. It, it, it is it's the idea that so long as you can create um, this boogeyman of blackness and then create this idea that we're what is to be feared, criminalized, beaten, caged, poisoned, you know, erased, all of these things, then anyone that is coming into this country is not going to align themselves with blackness, even if. They are called atrocious things like Nikki Haley was called, but she'll be like, well, it wasn't the N word. Right. So, th- I mean, this is this is kind of it is it is psychotic. White supremacy to me is psychotic. And uh, Professor Anderson, the question that I have for you is, you know, again, as all of these as all of these um, aspects of white supremacy are being recycled right now. And we're in an age where books have become more dangerous than AR-15s, right? Where, where, where a black child holding a book that is written by Toni Morrison is considered more dangerous than a white child holding an AR-15 in many states around this country. How do we get to a place where, are, are we at a place of revolt? Because what they are working overtime to tell us that racism doesn't exist by showing us that racism is alive and well, right? We had we had Cheryl Lee Ralph just sing, uh, lift every voice and sing uh, at, at the at, at the Super Bowl, and you had Representative Lauren Boebert come out and say NFL, what is this woke anthem? And I'm like, did you listen to it? Did you read it? Because clearly you did not, right? So how how do how do you think that? We need to be reacting in this moment to these time and tested strategies that work. Okay. And so what is so clear that we need to do is to band together. It is to read as much as we can to understand what is being done, what, what, why it's being done, what the scripts are. So notice how CRT becomes the critical race theory, becomes the boogeyman. When, when, and, and they were very clear, we're going to call everything critical race theory, even when it's not critical race theory, because we're going to scare the bejeebers out of white America. And we're going to do that work. Um, and so it means that we have to be really intentional about not buying into their language, their framing, um, and that we have to band together because the way that it works is you take out one group first and then you take Come out on. the next one and then you take out the next one and then you take out the next one and you see it. So you saw that the National Review in um, looking at what DeSantis was doing with the 
uh, African-American studies AP course in Florida said, okay, if this one goes through, then there's going to be one for Latino studies. And if then there's going to be one for queer studies. So we have to stop this thing now. I mean, so it, and it's, it is to create, and I'm moving from African-American studies to history, but it is to create what uh, Rick Santorum, what I call the Rick Santorum School of History, where he said, Europeans came to this empty land and we yep. built this. Yep. Right? A, the land was so not empty. <laughs> so not empty. And, but when we're talking about erasure, and B, you built this? Europeans built this all by themselves? What about the Chinese? What about the Mexicans? What about the enslaved Africans? What about the immigrants? The xenophobia that you use to, to, to isolate them? What about them? So that, that language of we built this then is what, when you create that bad history, it then allows you to move into bad public policy, to talk about makers and takers and who's deserving, who, who built this, who's the real American. I mean, that's what that language does. It creates this, this sense of incredible entitlement to all of the resources of this nation. And that, and so I look at uh, Pat Buchanan. He wrote a piece after Barack Obama gave his talk on race. And Buchanan's piece uh, was a brief for Whitey, is what it was called. And it was one of the most shared from his website. And he said, I am so sick of Black people lecturing to us about race and racism. So let me tell you, nobody has done more for Black Americans than white Americans. We, <laughs> we brought okay. you here from Africa and we gave you Christianity. Wow. We gave you welfare. We gave you, you know, housing. We gave you student loans. And I'm like looking at this going, wow. And that this was the most shared, most downloaded from his site tells you the kind of toxin that is being imbibed. It's the toxin that uh, the killer up in Buffalo, and I'm not going to name him, um, who was imbibing all of that, you know, great replacement theory mess, went up into Buffalo and to wipe out Black people because they were a threat. Um, it is what Dylan Roof in South Carolina did when he walked into that church, that Bible study, um, and, and wiped out nine Black people who were just praying, Lord, Lord. So, I mean, it is, that is the toxin that is being just layered, snorted up. You know, I wrote this piece that said white supremacy is the most dangerous drug in America because folks get a hit of it and they start feeling empowered when they're actually getting weaker. They start feeling uh, emboldened when they're actually, they need to, to be sitting down. It, it makes them forsake their God, their country, and their family. White supremacy is toxic. White supremacy is what sent folks crashing into the Capitol on January 6th because you had these hate mongers talking about they stole the election in Atlanta. They stole the election in Philadelphia. They stole the election in Milwaukee. These are cities with sizable Black populations. And so what they're saying is that Black folks who voted weren't American citizens. If you don't count their votes, then Trump won. Wow. Wow. And that's the, the fuel, the, the nasty, toxic fuel that they spew to get their folks angry. Like something's something that they have earned, something that they're entitled is to is being taken. Mm -hmm. Taken from them. And it's because of this myth history. Is it any wonder DeSantis and company don't want real African American studies being taught to understand the, the tectonic plates beneath what we're seeing? When we see, you saw the recent report that came out, the recent study that said rich black women have a higher infant mortality rate than poor white women. Came out of the New York Times yes. two days ago. 
right? When you think about how with stop and frisk, right? That, that was to keep us safe. How it worked was you had this massive targeting, hyper-policing in black and brown communities. But the majority of the contraband, the drugs, the weapons were found on the handful of whites that the cops stopped. So if this was about crime, then what you're doing is you're looking at where you're finding most of the contraband, but it's not. I mean, so and, how- and, 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 Yeah, go ahead. No, continue, Professor. I was no. just saying that if, if, if we really cared about crime, uh, we'd crack down on prescription drug abuses. We'd crack down on meth. Uh, the opioid crisis would What's be the crisis? war on drugs too, mm -hmm. a war harder. But instead, it's seen as a public health crisis because the victims are white yes. and they need help and counseling. Yes. But I remember when it's us, when it's black folks in particular, there's tanks in the streets of L.A. Uh, they're wiping folks out in Oakland uh, when it's Muslims and Arabs. It's the war on terror and the removal of surveillance. And, and I want to mm -hmm. talk about, you know, fighting back and defending yourself. And your book, which I finished yesterday, it just lingers in my mind because you make a very persuasive case that the Second Amendment, which gives all of us the right to bear arms, it's not all of us. Each time <laughs> black folks historically have exercised that right, your book through really just shocking moments of violence that I did not know about, you detail how white rage and white supremacy did everything in its power to quash uh, that black right. And, and specifically, you know, white supremacy has spread and has been able to endure through violence and terrorism, and the weapon of choice has been the gun. And your book makes the case, very persuasive case, going from Philando Castile all the way back to black troops that each and every single time white folks saw a black man holding a gun, even if he was deputized, even if he was a fellow soldier, they would see him as a threat and kill him, hang him, lynch him. If black folks were literally on in their house defending themselves, standing your ground, you, you give this example of how a white mob came and literally wanted to massacre the town and the black folks had to rally to defend themselves. And ultimately, and this is not, you know, don't worry, this is not a spoiler alert. Uh, the book makes the, the kind of sobering case that black skin itself is the ultimate threat to white supremacy. So if black skin itself, Professor Anderson, is the threat to white supremacy, how can black people be safe in this country when they're not even allowed to arm themselves like Philando Castile? It's a question that I had as a brown man. Like, if I was black, what would I tell my kids? How do you stay safe? And, and, and this is where, again, doing that heavy lifting of educating all of us. So do you remember the 50-state protest movement during the summer when George, after George Floyd was murdered? And you remember how in the top 10 of the New York Times bestsellers that summer were all books on racism, white supremacy, and how we fight back. Right. And because you have people seeing that horrific video of Derek Chauvin with his knee on George mm. Floyd's neck for nine minutes, being really cavalier about killing this man. So nonchalant, not worrying about consequences because he didn't think there were going to be any. And you have people just stunned going, how did that happen? That's not who we are. And, and you have right you have black folks going, uh, well, uh, no. well, you know, go like church. Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And so you have people running to the books to understand. And do you remember during the summer protest where uh, in Washington D.C. where there was a young black man who and the cops were coming at him, and a young white woman jumped in front of him because to to stop the cops because she understood her privilege, and her power. You can see how having this young white woman jump in front of a black man to protect him from the cops could send just signals of warning, danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson. Because if white folks understand how white supremacy really works and the damage that it does to them, then they're no longer aligned with this mess. And so that is what so much of this work is that we're doing. It is to help this nation really. Save. That's how we get safe. That's how we get safe. Um, and 
Yeah, go ahead, Danielle. Because I, I, I want to add, because you, because you saying this about what the top 10 books were during that, during that uprising summer, which I refer to as the internship for white people that ended in the fall. Um, it lasted six months, it, Danielle. It, it lasted, lasted six, six months. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, <laughs> is it, is that, Professor Anderson, is that the cause of the, of the white lash that we're seeing now with CRT and curriculum, where I had thought that this was really the leftover effects, the residuals of Barack Obama's presidency, but no, was it the killing of George Floyd? Because then white people are like, how is this happening? How, who are we as a country? And black people are like, we've been trying to tell you who you are. James Baldwin said, but you can't change what you don't face, right? Ooh, you ooh. can't change what you don't read. Ooh. Is this what sparked it? I think that this was a key element in it. So Obama's election is part of what I track in White Rage and in my book, uh, One Person, No Vote, in terms of the voter suppression efforts that have come up to try to, to strip African-Americans and Asian-Americans and Hispanics and young people and poor people, because I call that the Obama coalition. Um, of of stripping them of their voting rights to make it harder for them to vote. And, but part of what you saw after 2016, because the voter suppression techniques worked, Black voter turnout went down by 7%. 7%. It was the margin of difference. And so, but then you saw grassroots organizations mobilizing, figuring out what those barriers were and then working with their communities to jump over those barriers, to drive through those barriers, to dig under those barriers, to get to the polls and to vote. So that is part of the backlash that we're seeing. Know that. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. other key component of it, and this is why they use that, what they think is a derogatory term, woke. I'm like, so you'd rather be sleepwalking through this? Come on. That's <laughs> yes. what I say. That is exactly what I say. Ignorant right. and heedless. Woo! Mm -hmm. Woo! Uh, driving while sleep. I mean, that just makes mm -hmm. no sense. That makes no sense. But they use woke as the, as the way to, to vilify people who are concerned about our collective humanity um, as a way of using the N-word without using the N-word, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's a way that, that it was the summer of George Floyd where that, that fear of wokeism really began to just deepen and resonate. It had been there for a while, but that, to me, that punctuated it. It was like, how do we stop this mess? How do we stop people from learning the history of this nation? And so they, they, they flip it by talking about they want our children to grow up hating this nation. Yeah. So, yep. so, right. And yep. so my thing That's is. That's what Nikki Haley's doing in her ad. Right. And so I'm like, okay, so if this nation has done something that would cause them to hate it, don't you think we need to know what that is so that it doesn't happen again? Because if you've done something that would make you hate where you live, then we got to fix this thing. And, and it is that, that, that driving effort to not engage in real conversations. And so it's really easy. So um, a friend of mine did a study on Haitian immigrants in New York City. So this is why I loved your story, Danielle. And, and so what she talked about when she interviewed uh, Haitians who had first come here, and they may have, you know, they were the first generation. They may have been here for 25 years, but they were like, yeah, we're going back. We're going back. And, but they would talk about black folk, African-Americans like, oh, that is not what you want to be. Ooh. They just want a government handout. They don't, they, they're, they're lazy. They won't work. You know, it was all the criminals. It was all of the stereotypes. When she went back for her second book and interviewed the second generation, the folks who had dealt with the NYPD, the folks who had come through New York's public school systems, they were like, yo, we be black. Because, <laughs> oh, because they had, because 
this society cannot make that distinction between African-American and Haitian. No. Nope. <laughs> right. And so well, when got- I look at Danielle, I'm like, that is the daughter of Jamaican immigrant. <laughs> when I look at Professor Anderson, I'm like, that is an African-American black woman. <laughs> right, right, right. It's, isn't, isn't it obvious? I mean, and so the inability to, to make that distinction, but also I think of a book by uh, Noel Ignatieff, how the Irish became white. Oh, yeah. Good book. Right. Right. Because when the Irish came here, absolutely vilified, 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 vilified. And it's like, so how do you move from being vilified to being white? And it was, okay. we have got to demonstrate our hatred for black folk. We have got to we have got to to make that really clear that we are not them. We are not only not them, but we can't stand them. Um, That's how you earn your stripes. That's how you earn your white stripes. and, and so this is why knowing that history, knowing how racism and white supremacy is deployed, it means then that when you understand that in places like Tulsa and Ocoee and Groveland, um, in Fayette, uh, Fayette County, um, Georgia, where you had thriving black businesses in the midst of Jim Crow, folks doing everything they're supposed to do, working hard, investing their money, taking care of their kids. And that white supremacy came in in a wave of violence and just destroyed that. When you see black poverty now, it makes it really easy to go, well, you know, everybody else has made it. I don't know why they can't. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Upward mobility. Upward mobility. If you don't I'm the good one. Why can't they work hard? Right. If you don't have this history, it doesn't make sense. So we looked at Ocoee, for instance, Ocoee, Florida, where black folks tried to vote. And instead, you got ethnic cleansing where they they lynch black people, burn down their businesses, burn down their homes, burn down their churches and ran black mm. people out of there. Ten million dollars worth of black property. Was stolen from that community. Wow. Wow. Begin to think about what that means in terms of upward mobility, in terms of being able to have the viability to be able to intergenerational wealth. You think about all of those things that become part of the American dream and how that gets wiped out by white supremacy. From the New Yorker staff writer, Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now, wherever you get your podcasts. Professor Anderson, uh, I, I, you know, me and Danielle are going to exercise uh, <laughs> our right to be indulgent because we love having you here. And we're just going to keep you for just a couple more minutes. But I, I have a quick, my final mm-hmm. quick question before I hand over yeah. to Danielle. You know, you're talking about this this historical legacy of white supremacy, this enduring virus. And I recommend, again, everyone read 
your what I call the trilogy of Carol Anderson books to really understand it. Uh, and I would start with White Rage, which I keep citing, uh, One Person, No Vote, and the second, which is coming out in paperback. And all these books, tight, under 200 pages, and you make this very compelling case that uh, we ain't done with the past. The past ain't done with us. And each and every single time, you make this compelling case that every time there is a moment and an effort, a collective effort, to go towards sanity, two steps forward, one step back. And that one step back is because white rage choke holds us back. And I've heard this from some black folks. is like, you know, we'll, this country will finally get to be uh, the country it, it sells itself to be, and we can all achieve the American dream if white people just become less crazy. And our producer, Quentin, just sent us this poll that says, the reason why Republicans are terrified is because Gen Z and millennials are less conservative. However, I've also read that white folks and white youth still choose whiteness, right? So they're more progressive on LGBTQ, on gender relations, on climate change. But when it comes to whiteness, they take after their parents. And a majority of whites now in America think that whites are the most oppressed minority in this country. So a question I have for you, and, and it might seem to be very blunt, how do we convince enough white folks to be less psychotic? And they're not psychotic due to genes, they're psychotic due to white supremacy. There is a wonderful book by Jonathan Metzl called Dying of Whiteness. Yes, good, <laughs> right? friend, good friend of mine. Friend yes. of the show. Yes. Yes. Friend of the show. Uh, and I love that book because here you see basically the power of whiteness, the willingness to destroy yourself in Come order on. to keep the resources of this nation away from black people, away from brown people, away from Asian Americans, a way to, to, you know, so he looked at guns, for instance. Um, and, and when he was talking with folks who have had gun violence in their family and talked about gun safety laws, they were like, oh, absolutely not. Because those people from St. Louis will come down here and try to take everything we have. Our guns are the only things that protect us. The folks from St. Louis aren't coming down, but this becomes part of part of you think about uh, Jonathan Simon wrote a book called uh, Governing Through Crime. And it was the way that politicians gin up this fear of black criminality as a way mm -hmm. to stay in power. Uh, we saw it in the 2020 election. We saw it in the 2022 election where it was like crime, crime, crime. Mm. You know, they burned down Atlanta. They burned down New York. And, and, you know, you're walking around Atlanta and you're like, okay, so where was the burning? Uh, and it is this way, though, of signaling that, that Black is dangerous. And so it requires yep. white folks to really understand how they have been played, how they have, their lives, their life chances have been destroyed. By mm. white supremacy. They're literally dying. Yes. They're, they're killing themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it requires doing that work. Um, and it's really hard because it's so easy that that British piece of divide and conquer, it makes it really easy to say those people are getting the handouts that you deserve. I mean, that becomes the the foundation for affirmative action, the, the salt on affirmative action. But when it comes to college admissions, the greatest beneficiary of affirmative action are men, white, uh -huh. young men, right? And it's because they don't take their grades as seriously and their, their extracurricular activities as seriously as young women. And so in order to bring about a gendered balance in the incoming class, admissions officers have to cut off the women's applications really high. And then they have to dig down deep, deep, deep to get enough men to bring it up so you've got some kind of gendered balance. But you never hear that. Instead, you hear about all of these unqualified minorities taking our slot. It's that language of the zero-sum game that is yep. absolutely instrumental in being able to effectively deploy white supremacy. So you erase the history that can explain why this thing looks this way. And then you deploy the, they're taking something legitimate from you. 
that you have earned and they haven't earned it. And so, again, I know I keep going back. That's why the assault on public education is real. The assault on teaching quality, quality, a quality curriculum that is robust is real. Because what folks know, because once you see, you can't unsee. Unsee. Yeah. And I, you know, and Professor, it's, it's, you know, and I, I appreciate so much your time and your insight. Like this is probably one of the most robust conversations uh, that we've had in, in, in quite some time. And the, the final question that I have for you really is truly about the, 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 sh- the strength of our democracy moving forward, right? Because for me, and, and, and folks know from listening to this show and others that I am a former educator. I was a early childhood educator. I taught first and second grade in Washington, D.C. I went into education policy. I believe in education as literally the foundation for a successful democracy, for a successful country. And what you mentioned with regard to Jonathan Metzl's book about dying of whiteness is the is the belief, right, is the, is the desire and the psychoses that Waj mentioned around white supremacy that would have them destroy the country, right, in order to hold on to this white grievance, right, this 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 idea of being owed. And so the final question that I have for you is that our democracy is hanging on by a thread. And the more that we... Um, erase our history, the more that we deny younger generations the access to a robust and thorough curriculum and understanding of this country and the world around them, the less globally competitive that they become, right? And so do you see us advancing, our, our democracy surviving? Or is honestly, or, or are, are, we, are we already the walking dead? No, we are not. Because just like the Tuskegee Airmen, we fight, we fight, we fight. And I mean, that's what you see when you, when you, let's look at Georgia. In the 2020 election, Georgians, the turnout rate was phenomenal. And folks were willing to endure the pandemic and long lines Mm -hmm. because they understood that democracy hung in the balance for that Senate runoff race where it was um, John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock Mm -hmm. against uh, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. Mm -hmm. Black voter turnout was 92%. Wow. That's no joke. That's folks. We're not playing here. Let me tell you my name. Folks weren't playing. 92%. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. That is how we fight. We fight through education. We fight through the ballot box. It's not just one thing. It is a multi-pronged strategy because white supremacy is a multi-pronged strategy coming at this, what could be an incredible multiracial, multi-ethnic, multilingual democracy. Wow. This thing could be just f-doggone-nominal. Instead, Mm -hmm. you know, so one of the things that I argue in the second is that because of the power of anti-Blackness, we have made a choice as a nation to be unsafe in our schools, to be unsafe in our churches, to be unsafe in our recreational facilities, to be unsafe uh, wherever we are. 
as long as we can gain access to a gun to protect us from the black folk. Now, that is a, 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 that is a, a, a choice that we have made that is killing us, that is destroying us, that is making it so difficult. So this is why we fight. Because once we acquiesce, they just roll right over. They run right over us. We continue to fight because we there are more of us and we have the vision of what this could be. And it's not this hold out husk of a thing that that is comfortable with low voter turnout rates. You know, so I think about Paul Weirich, the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, when he raises to the core. Oh, when he said, you know, all of you goo-goos out there, you you believe in good government because you want everybody to vote. He said, well, I don't, because quite candidly, our leverage goes up as the voting populace goes down. Mm. Now, think about that as a governing philosophy. The fewer people that vote, the more power we have. That's what we're seeing right now when we see all of these voter suppression bills coming through. So the voter suppression bills that are coming through is the white rage from 2020 and 2022. That's what we're seeing right now. And we fight. That's where the hope is. Let me tell you, Professor Carol Anderson, this was phenomenal. This was exactly the kind of energy I needed as we close out Black History Month, the shortest, <laughs> the shortest month, month of, of the year. year. <laughs> as we, you know, as we are just being inundated with lies and deceit and detestable people, this is the energy that democracy ish listeners needed today. I just want to thank you so much for your time, for your energy, for your brilliance. Um, I'm I'm in awe, absolutely in awe. And we appreciate you. And and we appreciate you by buying your books. Again, I recommend I've read them all. I recommend everyone get White Rage, One Person No Vote, and her latest book, The Second, which is coming out on March 7th in paperback. It's called The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Thank you for listening to Democracy Ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah.